0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. (laughs) Rosie Perez is maybe one of the most fascinating people we've ever had on Bullseye. She's a native of Bushwick, Brooklyn, and she's performed on stage and screen. She was nominated for an Academy Award for her role in 1993's Fearless. She had iconic parts in White Men Can't Jump and Do the Right Thing. She's been a host on ABC's The View, served as Grand Marshal of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and she's an incredible dancer. She was even the choreographer on In Living Color. Through all that creative work, one thing is clear Rosie Perez is a deliberate, brave artist who carries with her a commanding presence when she performs. And of course, she has one of the most unmistakable voices ever. In the interview you're about to hear, we aren't going to talk much about Rosie's acting career, but let's start with a little bit from one of her most memorable performances. Here she is playing Tina in the all-time classic, Do the Right Thing.
1: Wait a minute. First of all, it is too hot, all right? And if you think I'm gonna let you get some, put your clothes on and leave here and I'll see you a black a- for another week, you must be bugging.
0: i see you tomorrow.
1: Yeah, right, and my name is Boo Boo the Fool.
0: So, no nasty, huh?
1: No.
0: Tina, let's do something else. Then.
1: What?
0: Trust me.
1: Trust you? Uh, monkey the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. Remember your son?
0: I do remember my son. His name is Hector, you
1: know? What are you trying to say, I'm a bad father? Honest man. Let me
0: talk to you for a second. What? What? Over here. Rosie Perez, I'm so thrilled to have you on Bulls. I thank you for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thank you
0: for having me. When you did Do the Right Thing, you were like 20 or 21 or something, right? 20, Mm mm-hmm. Did you even think of yourself at the time as an actor?
1: Mm, No. (laughs) <laughs> I I had um I had acted the nuns put me on the stage early on I was the lead bunny in the uh, Easter parade show and I was Lucy in Charlie Brown's Christmas and I never wanted to do it and they get on the stage you know so um yeah, so I didn't, I, you know, it wasn't my first acting gig, if you will. But uh, I never counted that. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, when, when Spike first met me, he told me I was an actress. And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, oh, yes, you are. And so, who knows?
0: <laughs> you, you met him in very unusual circumstances.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the old story. I'll do the clip now. You don't notes. have to
0: tell it, but you can if you want to.
1: Went to a nightclub, saw girls on the stage doing a butt contest, got angry, jumped on the stage, made a mockery of it by bending over. He comes over with bodyguards, tells me to get down. I got scared. I thought they were going to kick me out of the club. And he said, tonight is fate. I said, oh, you wish. And he started laughing. And he said, my name is Spike Lee. And I said, so? And my girlfriend was like, where is that's Spike Lee? Producer gave me his card. My girlfriend called him the next day and the rest is history.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit about your early life. You referred to the nuns. You lived part of your childhood in a convent home for uh, children. How did you end up living there?
1: I'm a product of an affair, so my mother and father were married to different people. They met up. I, I happened. <laughs> and then when I was a week old, my mother gave me to my father's sister, Ana Domingo Taro, God rest her soul, And I thought she was my mom. I thought she was my mom. And four years later, my mother came back, ripped me out of my aunt's home, arms only to put me in a home, uh, in a convent which was very weird. It was very, very weird and very startling. I remember bits of it, but the bits that I do remember, I remember them very, very vividly. And from day one, I remember saying to myself, I don't belong here, you know, because I was so loved. I was so spoiled. So that didn't mix well with the nuns.
0: When you lived there, what was your relationship like with the rest of your family, with your mother? And you had half-siblings who also lived there and half-siblings who didn't. And, and your father was, I guess, at that point living in Puerto Rico?
1: hmm He lived in Puerto Rico and in Brooklyn, my father. I didn't know my half-siblings, uh, my mother's other children. They were strangers to me, and I wanted them to be, you know, family But they didn't want me, and it was mainly because of it wasn't their fault. It was what my mother and and their father put in their head about me. You know, I was the love child. I was the bastard child, you know. So it was difficult, and then slowly one or two of them came around and, you know, were very, very friendly to me, and I really appreciated that. Um, But I never really felt part of the clan ever. Ever. So that was, a, that was a little bit difficult as well.
0: Did either of your parents ever come?
1: Yes. My father came as often as he could. My mother didn't come that often. And when she did, I was truly made to feel different in the sense that when all of her children gathered in the cafeteria to eat, I was told to sit at the end of the table. They were served first, and I had to wait for the scraps. And then I was given the scraps. And I think that my mother did that to appease her husband. You know, he's looking at <laughs> the result of her affair. So I think that she suffered from severe mental illness, so I think in her mind it was rational behavior to treat me that way, even though I was a little girl. My aunt came all the time, nonstop, nonstop. And when I got older, I really, truly appreciated her effort because she would leave Williamsburg, Brooklyn and go upstate New York every weekend, rain, sleet or snow, to see me. And I remember when I was older, I said, why did you do that? And she said, because I had to. And I said, why did you have to? She goes, because I love you. I love you, so I had to. You know, and that's, that's pure unconditional love. And my father, when he would come to visit me, it was more like a date with my dad. He always took me out to to eat. He always took me shopping. He would take me places to see around the area. And it was special. I just didn't treat him right. (laughs) Because I was angry. I was angry. And, um, you know, it didn't take me till I got a little bit older to really understand what was going on. And once I did, I felt really, really bad as to how I treated him. Because That man never gave up on me, ever. So, and he didn't have rights at the time because I didn't have his last name.
0: I was thinking about your mom who was uh, schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. although you didn't know it at the time when you were a kid. And I was thinking about, there's schizophrenia runs in my family. I have an uncle who was schizophrenic. And, you know, my uncle was very severely schizophrenic by the time I can remember But it was very difficult for me to understand Hmm. and and i had a friend in high school whose mother was i think schizophrenic although much more manageably so my uncle was institutionalized and and she was able to work and she had a family and so forth and the feeling that i remember from both of those situations one when i was you know a younger kid with my uncle and one when i was a teenager with my friend's mom when I, when I was in her house was how unsettling the unpredictability of it mm-hmm. was specifically. Mm-hmm. Like not even that all things were horribly negative or brutal or anything, you know, but just that it, when you're a kid, you just are trying to figure out what the rules of life are And it's very hard to do that when the ground is shifting under your feet in that way.
1: Hmm. That's well said. Yeah, that's, that's, you got that right. Yeah. So you're always working, walking on eggshells, waiting for the crack.
0: Did you think when the nuns at the home told you that you were talented, did you agree with them? Like, did you think, were you proud of being good at performing?
1: I had a lot of confidence, even though I was very, very insecure in a lot of ways. Even when I was little, I think because I was so loved initially and so spoiled, I had a sense of myself. The insecurity was not having a foundation of family and love and support. But I knew I could do whatever they asked me to do. I knew I could play Lucy in a heartbeat. I knew I could play Linus, which I begged them to let me play, and they were worried that I had lesbian tendencies. <laughs> um, but I think that when I felt good was when it came to dancing, because it came so easily to me. Uh, my aunt told me that I was dancing, even as an infant, you know, on my back you know, always moving. I just would never, ever stop, she said, unless I was tired, and then that was it. I was over it. I was tired, and I wanted to sleep. But when the nuns taught me how to tap (laughs) and modern dance and um, this Asian, I think it's Filipino or Thai, stick dancing.
0: Yeah, that's Filipino. Yeah. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, and it all came just so easily to me, and it felt good when I was told that i was good at it we didn't get a lot of praise from nuns it wasn't like oh my gosh you're wonderful It was like very good it was like that (laughs) you know and there was the novices you know there's nuns and then you're a novice before you become a nun the novice before they were tainted sorry for you catholics out there I'm, I'm, i'm talking about my own experience with the catholic church um They were giddy about something that a child would do well there. They were the ones that would say, oh, that's wonderful, and be very, you know, enthusiastic about your achievements. But the nuns that were there for a long time, they were over it. (laughs) They were over it. They were like, that's good. Okay, line up for supper. It was kind of like that.
0: So you've mentioned you were doing— the, the stick dancing, which is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I did a little bit of that in, in high school with the Filipino club. It was really fun. It is fun. Uh, there's a lot of banging sticks. Yeah. So, like, also kind of a martial art. But you were you were doing that, and then you were doing you were doing tap. Mm-hmm. Were you doing like Shirley Temple numbers?
1: We weren't doing Shirley Temple numbers, but I would imitate Shirley Temple all the time. I didn't connect it because I was so traumatized being thrown into that situation at the home. But later I discovered why I loved Shirley Temple so much. It was that that was my aunt's favorite as well. So she was obsessed with her and so we used to watch Shirley Temple movies together all the time. So I would do that on my own. That wasn't really what the nuns had had taught us. They taught us more Sammy Davis Jr. I don't know why, don't ask me. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> I guess they tickled their, he tickled their fancy, you know? So, um, yeah, so, yeah.
0: Are there things that you did when you were in that home that you think back on very fondly? Like, were there sources of happiness for you in that situation?
1: Yes. There was this one nun, her name was Sister Anne. She was a novice and then she became a nun And I remember I used to tell her, don't do it. (laughs) Um, But she was so kind to me, and she was so funny. And we used to have good times where I would read a book, and I would discuss the book with her at length. And she just showed so much patience with me and would endure my long soliloquies about whatever. And she was very kind and there was another nun sister antoinette and one of my punishments was they withheld food that's why i'm a greedy slob this day i i have no control when it comes to food and i know through therapy it goes back to that where they withheld food as punishment and sister antoinette was in charge of the kitchen and me and this one girl i don't want to say her name cuz she's still alive but she was crazy <laughs> She and I were close, close friends, and one day, one night, I'm starving, my My stomach is growling, and she wakes me up when everyone's asleep, and she said, let's sneak down to the kitchen. And I was a very good girl. I just had a bad temper because I wasn't happy, but I was a very good girl. And And I said, no, 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 we're going to get in trouble, they're going to beat us. And she said, no, 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 come on, everyone's asleep, and we went down to the kitchen, and we were just stuffing the food in our mouths. And Sister Antoinette clicks on the lights and I just started crying, cause I just thought, that's it. I'm gonna get the crap beat out of me right now. And she just looked at us and she goes, let me make you a cheese sandwich. And we were both like shaking in our slippers and just I just couldn't be still, I was so scared. And she said, sleep down, and she made us sandwiches. So every time after that, every time I got punished, she would kind of look at me and wink, and I knew I could sneak down, and she would give me food. So that was very nice. And there were wonderful, wonderful counselors and volunteers that would come to the home during the day that were really special. There was Mr. Neal and his wife, Betsy, they were very kind to me. They would always take me for a ride in their car. There was Miss Claudia. She would uh, take me for sleepovers at her house and take me, to, take me shopping to buy uh, nice clothes. And she taught me how to act out in public. <laughs> and then there was one special, special nun, Sister Margaret Frances, who actually left the order. She had the biggest impact on me. I remember when she was leaving, she came to see me before she left for good. She came back for a visit. And I remember she grabbed my arm and there was, her eyes were flooded with emotion. And she grabbed my arm and she said, put your head down and study as hard as you can and get out. Your mind, your intelligence is your ticket out. I go, okay, and she squeezed my arm so hard, and she says, no, I want you to promise me, say it. Say that you're going to do it. You don't belong here. And I said, I promise. She hugged me, and she left, and I never saw again. So there were really caring people there, like really, really caring people there. It wasn't just about sadistic nuns and angry priests. There were some really beautiful folks that affected my life in a really sincere way.
0: Even more from my interview with Rosie Perez after a quick break. When we come back, Rosie tells us about dancing on Soul Train. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from TodayTix. With the TodayTix app, getting tickets to your favorite shows is a fast, easy process. This Cyber Monday, use TodayTix as your go-to hub for everything from theater and arts to comedy and opera. Try TodayTix now by going to todaytix.com bullseye and use promo code bullseye to get $10 off your first purchase. This week on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, we take you back to 2015 when Ozma Jama, a Somali-American woman, was assaulted for speaking Swahili at a restaurant. Tune in to hear how Ozma found support from an unlikely source, the sister of the woman who attacked her. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor, TV host, dancer and celebrated boxing enthusiast, Rosie Perez. She's performed in classic films like White Men Can't Jump and Do the Right Thing, among many, many others. She's also a brilliantly talented dancer and choreographer. She got her first big break on Soul Train. Let's get back into our conversation. Have you ever seen the Werner Herzog documentary Little Dieter Needs to Fly? No. It's about this guy who served in the Air Force. His name is Dieter. And... He was a prisoner of war in Laos and was held captive and forced to march and all these really horrible things. And there's a scene in the movie, he's in his house in Marin County in California, and it's a pretty nice house, and he's okay, and he goes into his kitchen, and he lifts up the floor, and he shows that he has, like, enough food for, like, years. <laughs> and he says, I can, I can only sleep knowing that this food is here. Hmm. And I was listening to you years ago on a show on WNYC in New York, that was like a desert island discs kind of thing. Like a, what would you bring if you were, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island for a year or something and you had written on there like intake form or whatever, you know, some different thing, Billy, all the Billy Wilder movies was one of them. I remember like one of them was like, oh, a lot of tampons. <laughs> and like, they definitely, there was no category for like, what what food might you need on this trip? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they, I think it was supposed to be taken as read that they would provide all the like, uh, all the like personal necessities that you would need, all the toilet paper and everything. But you had written that in and that immediately made me think of that scene in Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Mm-hmm which is that, like, I mean, you were partly goofing around, and it was really funny. But also, it was like, when you've been through the trauma of really not having, that trauma lives with you for the rest of your life, no matter what the other circumstances of your life are or become.
1: 100%. And I wasn't really initially trying to be funny, but I knew it was funny. When I would, (laughs) when I was when I would watch movies, and like if it was a war movie or someone's trapped on a desert island, once I got my period, I go, what are they going to do? I always thought that. And it's because, you know, when I had to be at my mother's house by court-appointed visits, the environment, it was, I mean, abject poverty. And there was times where there weren't even any sanitary napkins. And that stuck with me. And even to this day, my biggest, biggest bill, my biggest expense is food and groceries because of the abject poverty and because of the punishment that I endured. And it drives my husband crazy, you know, because he goes, why do you go to Costco? It's just us. I go, just in case. You, know, it's just, you never know if the apocalypse is going to happen. You know? and, so, um, and seriously speaking, after 9-11, my first stop, I went to the corner store and I, I, I swear I almost bought out that entire store. I was I was terrified I was terrified to be without, and then I realized I'm like that without a crisis. It's just a part of who I am now, and I try my hardest to manage it, um, but it's still difficult. It's it's still difficult, you know, for me. It's a, a subconscious kind of reach for the, you know— 18-pound bag of coffee beans. (laughs) It just is what it is, you know?
0: You ended up uh, moving into uh, like something of a more traditional group home Mm -hmm. a little later in your childhood, and you went to regular school. And this was in upstate New York, right? Mm -hmm. What was it like to go to regular school even in the unusual circumstances of living in a group home, and I imagine most of your classmates were not living in group homes, but what was it like to go to regular school when you had spent, you know, years of your elementary school age life in this, you know, very difficult and also very insular environment of the convent? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> First of all, the group home was different too, as to what you, uh, people know what group homes are today. It wasn't run by the state. It was run by the Catholic Church. So that one was different in itself. And this one was a specific group home for either academically or socially advanced kids, kids that they thought could make it in the quote-unquote outside world. You know, we had a nice house. Um, You know, a car, group home parents, which was weird as hell, and eight other girls. And um, it was bittersweet because as soon as you left the house, whether you were standing on the front lawn in the plush, you know, two-acre lawn, on the plush two-acre lawn, you knew immediately from the other kids in the neighborhood that you were different and they were sure to let you know it. When you went on the school bus, it was the same thing. When you went inside the school, it was the same thing. And that shook me inside. And it made me sad, but I was too proud to show that sadness. And I had learned skills to protect myself subconsciously. And I fronted, but You know, most of the kids thought I was aloof and too cool for school, you know, or they just thought I was weird, which I was. (laughs) But I fell in love with suburbia. And it's so funny to me watching hipsters come to Brooklyn, fleeing the suburbs. And I go, why? Yes, Brooklyn is beautiful. It's all that. I live here. I don't want to leave. But, my God, I would love a weekend trip to the suburbs. It's gorgeous. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) You you don't hear your neighbors next door to you. You get in the car and there's free parking in the supermarkets. It's just lovely. You know, and... You look at the foliage and it, just, it was just wonderful. And I loved having friends who had a lot of money <laughs> because I would go into their houses and I would say, oh, my God, this is just like Rebecca Sunnybrook Farms. And they were like, what? <laughs> I go, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, it, they didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And Christmas in Connecticut, never saw that one either. The Holiday Inn. How about the Holiday Inn? Your house is just like the Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby. Nothing, <laughs> you know, because these were kids who had the privilege and the and, and uh, of being casual, of being comfortably casual that they didn't think twice about their environment. I thought about everything, and I mean. The girls in the group home, I know they resented me because I made friends outside of the group home, in the community and in the schools, very quickly. Very quickly. I didn't have that much of a ship on my shoulder. And I was just a friendly person as well. But I lived for sleepovers. Are you kidding me? I remember this one sleepover, this girl, Eileen, who I'm still friends with to this day. She lived about a half a mile from where the group home was, and her mom, Jean, God bless her, she lives in Florida now, took me under her wing. And I remember one time I had told Eileen something horrible that went down in the group home, and it was very violent. And she told her mom, and I was very angry at Eileen for doing that. And her mother goes, don't be angry at my daughter. That's what friends do. She told me because she cares about you. I went, what? That was weird to me. And she goes, my God, what they did to you there. You could come here anytime you want. And it was like my second home. It was my second home. And I remember the first time Jean made us hot cocoa with mini marshmallows. I went, oh, my God, we're like a commercial. And they thought I was hilarious. And I wasn't being funny at the time, but I knew it was funny. You know, and I would laugh along with it. And and then we would sing, we would watch The Muppet Show and sing the opening to The Muppet Show with our hot coffees with mini marshmallows in it. And I'm just twinkling my toes with joy. And Eileen just would laugh at me so much. And, and Miss Jean, she just would hug me and I would freeze up because I wasn't used to that type of affection outside of, you know, my aunt or my cousins who I thought were my sisters, you know. But she she was wonderful, so wonderful that she writes me every single year. She sends me a Christmas card. She sends me an Easter card, tells me Happy New Year. Eileen always gives me update letters, which I love that's so suburbia too, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, so do you
0: get those kind of, those kind of Christmas cards that have pictures of the whole family Mm -hmm. that you print out at the drugstore or whatever?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And they all have those ugly Christmas sweaters on. Yes. And I live and I put them all on the, on the refrigerator. My husband goes, I don't get it. I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was bittersweet. It was, it was quite bittersweet.
0: When did you start going out to dance?
1: I always was dancing, but to a nightclub, I think I was 12 or 13. I don't know what I wrote in the book. What's <laughs> that's not normal? <laughs>
0: I think most people wait till 14.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it wasn't that I wanted to go to the nightclubs. It was more like, um, you know, to go to the nightclubs. It was more of trying to be accepted by my half-siblings. So they would use us to, uh, we would practice dancing the hustle for hours all day. And then at night, we would get dressed up. We, I, I, don't, I don't know who we thought we were fooling at the doors, but in Brooklyn, it didn't matter. They would let you in back then anyway. And we would go to these, like, borough disco clubs. And my half-siblings would use me to show off on the dance floor. And then when a girl would come up, then I would have to sit down. And I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. I wasn't allowed to drink anything but water that they got me. And I would just watch them all night long until they were done, and then we would get back on the train and go home to my mother's house. That's that's how I was
0: introduced to the club scene. You eventually moved to Los Angeles to go to community college. Were things completely different in L.A. than they were in New York?
1: They were very different. You couldn't just hop on a subway and go anywhere you wanted to go. It was very much a car culture, still is, It was very much of a culture of isolation. So as soon as someone finishes work or finishes school and they go home, that was pretty much it unless they had something else on their schedule. They didn't casually walk out of their house and went for a walk or casually turned up at their friend's house and like, yo, what are you doing? Come on in. It wasn't like that. You had to make an appointment, which I found so strange said, hey, what are you doing? Can I come over? Huh? When? Now? Oh, did we have a date? What are you talking about? You're my friend. What do you mean a date? I got to make a (laughs) date with you to see you? So it was very different. It was very unsettling. And it was also extremely dangerous. New York had done away with gangs. That was like old school. And when I went to Los Angeles, the gang culture frightened me. It scared the heck out of me. And I remember telling my college friend, I said, this is like Sodom and Gomorrah out here with sunshine. This is like crazy town. And she goes, how can you say that being from New York? I said, New York, we we understand crazy. We get crazy. If crazy comes to you, you go, yo, get, move. Thank you. <laughs> <coughs> you know, in L.A., you don't know who's crazy. And it, it, and it just happens. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And it was very, very weird. It was very weird, and it was very lonely being out there without my New York base, my New York family. It was very hard for me to connect. I really didn't like it. I really, really didn't. The only thing that I did like about Los Angeles when I first went out there was that there was a lot of parking. There was ample free parking.
0: (laughs) You got discovered dancing in a club when you were like 19, I think, and invited to perform on Soul Train. There's a there's a few video compilations of you dancing on Soul Train that are on YouTube. They're basically the best thing on all of YouTube, except for maybe there's also a video where just a bunch of golden retrievers are all swimming in a swimming pool together. <laughs> and they love it so much, they're having a big party. But besides that video, <laughs> which is also really great... I think these YouTube compilations of you dancing on Soul Train are amazing. And what's amazing about it to me, and, like, I wasn't dancing at clubs in, you know, 1983 or whenever this was. But what's amazing to me about it is, you know, Soul Train, first of all, was not at the time a hip-hop show at all. And the styles of dancing that were being done on Soul Train in the mid-1980s were... Very different from what you were doing. So they were sort of fluid styles and then a little, maybe a little bit of like popping and locking or something. And in these videos of you dancing on Soul Train, you basically lock into the camera, deliver the most powerful face I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. And I'm talking about powerful in all categories. And then. You basically just do a dance that, like, I could only describe as, like, I guess we'd have to, maybe have to bleep this on the radio, but ass-kicking? <laughs> like a pow, pow, pow dance. And <laughs> and I think of you, like, showing up from New York on this TV show and being like, I've got this other thing that I do. <laughs> and... You do it with such extraordinary conviction. And like you don't you're not as you're you're not dancing in the style that the other people are. Like some of the other people are dancing really beautifully or coolly. You know, there's great dancers on Soul Train of all kinds. Mm-hmm. But you are like like a visitor from another planet. You're like, oh, this <laughs> is what I do. Wow.
1: Well, okay.
0: <laughs> and the question were you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the question is, were you like aware of that when you were doing it? Were you did you like get there and you're like, well, they all dance like this, I dance like that. I'm going to lock eyes with the camera and take care of business.
1: No. When I first went there, I was dancing hip hop and Don Cornelius told me to stop. And he says, "We don't do that sh- here." I went, "Okay. Got it." And I wasn't dressed appropriately either. So I had to change clothes and come back. Um, And I wasn't used to dancing in high heels. So I didn't know what the heck to do. Honestly, I really didn't. The way I was moving my body was, in a way, a virgin who thought they were being sexy would move their body. It was exaggerated beyond, but I didn't understand that. And it also was kind of tongue-in-cheek because my college girlfriends, I got them into. Shout out to Carol, Nia, <laughs> Tracy. And so we were watching everybody else take it so seriously, specifically going down the Soul Train line. And I didn't know what to do. My heart is pounding. And I think Carol was giggling the whole way. She's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I go, shut up, shut up. You know, and I go, I don't know, I don't know. And, and then she goes, let's have a contest. Who's going to be the, the wildest? So I was like, okay. And so I didn't fully understand what it meant that a camera was on me and that millions and millions of people would be watching. So it was kind of a dare the first time I went down. So I was half frightened to death and half cracking up. And when I went down and I did it the first time, Don Cornelius goes, Get back up there and do it again. I went, What? <laughs> and that was it. It stuck.
0: We'll wrap up with Rosie Perez after a break. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smartwater. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate, Smart Water Alkaline with nine plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water, that's pretty smart. Hey, cool shirt. Oh, this? Thanks. I got it at MaxFunStore.com. MaxFunStore.com.
1: Hmm, that's strange. I visited MaxFunStore.com a few weeks ago and didn't see it.
0: That's because they've just launched a ton of new stuff, right in time for the holidays. Oh, cool. There's patches, mugs, totes, stickers, even a onesie.
1: Nice. Those would make great gifts for everyone I know.
0: Great, because I already got you something from there.
1: Thanks. Now, excuse me a moment. I need to look up maxfunstore.com on my smartphone. You know, to see what's new.
0: Yeah, you can't go wrong with anything from maxfunstore.com. Maxfunstore.com.
1: How do you make an older parent struggling with health problems happy? I tell him I was getting engaged to a war photographer and that he and I just bought a parakeet named Gino. This week on NPR's Invisibilia, what happens when the roles we're used to performing with our loved ones get mixed up.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rosie Perez. You've seen her in Do the Right Thing, White Men Can't Jump, Search Party, On The View. She also choreographed the groundbreaking sketch comedy series, In Living Color. Let's get back into our interview. You choreographed the Fly Girls on In Living Color. Did you know, at the time, the impact that that was having as, you know, I mean, that was one of the first representations of, or at least one of the first kind of, First-person representations of hip-hop culture on big-time national television.
1: 100%. 100% I knew it. I had that discussion with Keenan, and I, I, I said that very thing. I said, this will be the first time on national television, national network, you're going to see hip-hop with every show. This is big. This is big. I don't want to do that solid gold dance that's out the window. And I want the Fly Girls to look a certain way. And I want them to dance and walk a certain way. I want them to blow middle America out of their mind. And he said, okay, do it. And after a couple of shows, I came up with the idea of booking the— hip-hop artists at the end of the show. No band, no DJ, just give them a mic. If they want to sing to track, let them. If they don't, let them. And Keenan loved that idea as well. I knew exactly what I was doing. And the reason why I did know that was my time on Siltrain. Because when I started sneaking a little bit of hip-hop moves the other kids loved it. There were some kids that knew how to do it and they just started to become bold and brazen as well. And you know, and 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 I remember the impact that that had on on the masses. So I did know. I didn't know how big of a phenomenon the fly girls were going to be though. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I don't I don't want to I don't want anybody to miss something that you just said, which is something that I didn't know until earlier today
1: Mm.
0: when a friend told me about it, uh, which is that not only were you responsible for the choreography of the Fly Girls, who obviously did become a, a, a huge cultural phenomenon, but you were a big part of bringing music into In Living Color, that is live hip hop, which At the time, was something that basically wasn't on television. Certainly not on network television. It was like roughly contemporaneous with Arsenio Hall starting to bring live hip hop music onto late night. But this was like you know I was an early adolescent at the time, and I watched it in the living room with my family, with my parents. You know, it would be Arrested Development or Leaders of the New School or whatever. You know, brand Nubian on. Television, and you were a big part of bringing those music acts into the show, which which had not been part of the original plan.
1: Yeah, I I mean the the other producers tried to shoot the idea down, and so did the network, and so did the um, what 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 is it called the 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 people that censor everything,
0: standards and practices.
1: Standards and practices. I was not their favorite person, so. Uh, yes, but I kept telling Keenan this is gonna be big. Middle America has no idea who Buster rhyme is, <laughs> let alone leaders <laughs> of the new school, you know, you know, or nice and smooth, uh, heavy D and the boys, like you said, the brand Nubians. I mean, and on and on it went. I did get upset after a while that well, rightfully so, it was Keenan's show he allowed his brothers to book some acts that I wasn't behind at all and I was like, you're killing the credibility of what I'm trying to do here. You know, and then finally Keenan gave me the reins back, which was which was good. You know, he was he was a fair boss. He really was. He was a good boss actually.
0: You were diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder, given all these childhood traumas, only frankly, some of which we've touched on in our conversation have you found it difficult in your life or have you developed skills to find places in your life to be comfortable or peaceful or feel secure
1: there are many places of my life that i can feel comfortable and peaceful and secure what happens are is that the waves come out of nowhere and that is part of my struggle with PTSD because when you're having a good day and everything seems fine and dandy, and then all of a sudden this wave comes over your head, and you're like, whoa, in the sense that all of a sudden a feeling of blah will come over me for no reason or a feeling of innate sadness, and I'll say, I don't know why I'm sad, you know, I don't know why I'm feeling this. And through therapy, intense therapy, I learned that that has to, those are, those are signs of my depression coming up to the surface. Those are, those could be triggers of my PTSD. And thank God I got help. Thank goodness. Life is so much better. I don't know if therapy is for everybody, but man, it sure has done me wonders and i thank goodness that i had enough courage to go ahead and do it and i'm still in therapy i don't go every day anymore <laughs> but <laughs> well, it was bad for a while but you know i you know i check in now and i and i do the work you know i do the work and life is so good i have a wonderful career i have a great career i've i've done so much better in regards to my relationships with friends and family. I have a wonderful husband, a wonderful marriage. You know, I love my charitable work. I love my activism work. It's it's My life is so full. And yet there are days where I feel like it's doomsday. And I have to sit down with myself and I have to do the work. And I have to remove my my... My soul from the past and get inside the present and understand I'm here. I'm right here. I'm not back there. All of that is gone. I've broken up with my past and I'm moving forward. You know, I'm not forgetting about it, just like you don't forget about an ex lover, but you don't want to go back to that one. You know what I'm saying? And you just want to move forward with it. You know, but it's a struggle and I and I I envy people who say, I used to have PTSD and now I'm good. Wow, really? Gosh, I wonder how that feels. You know what I'm saying? You know, when I you know, for instance, how my PTSD may trigger, I could be in my kitchen, my beautiful kitchen that my husband redid for me. And I'm cooking away my favorite pastime, cooking and eating. And then all of a sudden, I will have this sense that someone's going to come up against up behind me in my own house with the locked door with a knife and stab me in the neck. It's completely irrational. And that thought and that image of someone possibly behind me happens in a nanosecond. And I'll turn around. And I have to tell myself nobody's there. You're out of danger. You're not in the home. You're not in 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 you know your mother's house or the dangerous streets of Bushwick. You're not there anymore. It's just it's just a it's just a PTSD flash. Calm down. You know, and I'll take a deep breath. But those still happen. They don't happen all the time as they used to, but they still come. That's what I call a wave. I I hide. This acceptance speech from the great, late Helen Thomas, the White House correspondent. I I was privileged enough to be at the banquet that she was receiving the award for her work in journalism. And she had said that she was very nervous about her first assignment overseas, which was covering the Kennedys trip. I don't know if it was to France or England and she was stressing herself out and and the woman that she was staying with another fellow journalist in 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 uh, France I think it was France told her you need to calm down you need to calm why are you so nervous and she goes I'm, I'm I think I'm going to fail I think I, she goes where is that from she goes I don't know but I just feel like I'm I'm so scared of failing and she says well you know what you need to do you need to go down to my cellar my wine cellar pick out the best bottle, and we're going to crack it open and have a good time. And she said, are you crazy? We have to get up in the morning. She goes, even more reason to do it. Helen Thomas goes downstairs. She picks out a bottle of wine. Her friend looks at the bottle and says, oh, no, life's too short to drink the house wine. Go downstairs and get the good stuff, honey. And I live by that code. Life's too short to drink the house wine. Go get the good stuff in life, whether it be therapy or a walk or a wonderful partner or, or a beautiful home or living out your dream um, career. That's the good stuff. Hold on to it. Having a best friend that you could call at 3 o'clock in the morning like my girlfriend Julie Shannon or Ileana. Having a sister like my sister Carmen who's ride or die. You know, that's the good stuff. And when those waves come, I always tell myself, life's too short to drink the house wine, go get the good stuff.
0: Well, Rosie, you have dinner reservations, and I got to take my daughter to a birthday party. So I'm going to cut it short. I'm sorry that we didn't talk too much about your amazing acting work, which is... Uh, one of the reasons that I invited you on the program, but I am so, so grateful to have gotten to talk to you, and I thank you very, very much for coming on Bullseye. I I really admire you and your work, and thank you.
1: Thank you for this wonderful interview. I really enjoyed it. I was thinking, dear God, I hope it doesn't suck, and it truly did not. So thank (laughs) you. (laughs) (laughs) And...
0: And also, real talk, Rosie. Like usually, when somebody comes go, comes and does an interview, and this is, you know, uh, this is a, for understandable reasons. People do an interview because they got something to sell, and uh, you're not here because you got something to sell. You're you're here out of the kindness of your heart because I bothered you on Twitter, <laughs> and um, I'm very grateful to you for take for taking all this time for that reason. It's very very kind of you. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, and I am a fan of your show. So there's that too.
0: Rosie Perez, like we said in the interview, she doesn't really have anything to promote right now. So what can we plug? She's basically great in everything that she does. Uh, She's also the co-founder of the Urban Arts Partnership. It's a long-running New York nonprofit that works in education and the arts. You can find them online at urbanarts.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where uh, my producer Kevin saw a kid take a giant palm frond that was on the ground and throw it in the trash, helping to keep our park beautiful. What's the generation after millennials called? I don't remember, but they're good folks. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And there are nearly 20 years of Bullseye and Sound of Young America interviews available for free on our website at MaximumFun.org. Uh, You can also find many of them in your favorite podcast app by subscribing to Bullseye. I recommend, for example, the time Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim came on uh, the show. This was back when I used to tape it in my apartment. And they just wanted to talk about jazz. Just talked about jazz the whole time. It was a lot of fun. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.